This is KSKQ 89.5 FM Ashland, Oregon, and KSKQ Translator K231CW 94.1 FM Medford, Oregon, also streaming at www.kskq.org. And you are listening to Dream Infringement. We've been entertaining the Rogue Valley since 2016. That's right, our seven-year anniversary is almost upon us. My, where has the time gone? Dream Infringement is comprised of three co-hosts, me, Jennifer, and Bobby and Emily, couple extraordinaire co-hosts in life, not just on the show. We like to tell stories, play songs based on a weekly theme. Today it's just me hosting the show, so come and spend an hour with me. Let us hang out. In anticipation of this momentous event, I have prepared a theme. I'm going to start my little spiel, yeah, my little segue into what that theme might be. All right. So sometimes when I hear a name over and over again, it stops making sense to me as a name. It's kind of a title. And then one day I'll suddenly be like, whoa, Tina Faye's real name is Tina. Like, like her friends are like, hey, Tina, that's so weird. Or Chris Evans, he grew up with his mom being like, hey, Chris, can you take out the garbage? He's not just Chris Evans. He's, he's a Chris. So weird. My own name, Jennifer. What a weird assembly of letters and really hard sounding consonants. It doesn't flow. Sorry, mom. It doesn't flow. Perhaps because it's a modernized version of the Welsh name Guinevere, which is a lot more softer. It originated with some flow. Bobby. That sounds weird, right? Just a little. It's also weird that that's his his name. He's not a Robert in any legal sense of it. He came into this world christened Bobby. Emily, I think it does have some flow to it. It rolls. Sorry, Bobby. Emily, you won the contest that you didn't even know you were having. But we use names for other things like, I've never seen a wrench and thought, you know, that really looks like an Allen to me. We have Allen wrenches. I presume at some point in history an Allen was involved in its invention and creation. And like when we see the Zamboni machine at the skating rink, who was Mr. Zamboni? Was there a Mr. Zamboni? Did someone just decide that that's what it should be called for no reason? I mean, we don't really think about it until we really think about it. So let's delve into this world of how objects came to be named what they are. There's a lot of innovation, creativity, and history and things that we take for granted and use every single day. I'm going to play an introductory song to get things started. This is Andrew Bird with the song, The Naming of Things. Memories like mohair sweaters, stretch and peel for distress letters. Moses horns and figure eights, while plastic bags in search of mates, what's up the case, lamb? 
Has your friend, neighbor, coworker, relative ever got deeply involved in an MLM, multi-level marketing, aka pyramid scheme, and invited you to a party? They're like, just come, eat some food, see the products. It'll be fun. You don't have to buy anything. You always buy something. You can't it just happens. Well, that sales technique was really pioneered to popularity, starting with this product. And it all started with a man named Earl Tupper. He got a job with a DuPont chemical company and using the black and flexible pieces of polyethylene slag, a waste product of the oil refining process given to him by his supervisor, who was probably like, sure, Earl, take all the slag home that you would like. Weird guy. Um, he molded it to create lightweight, non-breakable containers, cups, bowls, plates, and later designed liquid-proof airtight lids. In 1946, he formed the Tupperware Company, naming it after himself, and began to sell his containers, but sales were slow at first because customers did not understand how the containers worked. Must have been pretty newfangled at the time. They're like, this container, it's so confusing. But a housewife named Brownie Wise came along and changed all of that. After a very long phone call where she told Earl about her success selling Tupperware at her home demonstration parties, he was sold and he hired her on the spot. Yes, this is a marketing device she had created, and soon Tupperware could be found in kitchens throughout the country. It was withdrawn from sale in retail stores in the early 1950s, and these Tupperware parties soon became popular in homes. This was the first instance of what became known as party plan marketing. Yep, brought to you by Brownie Wise and Earl Tupper of Tupperware. So that is how that got its name. Now you know, and you also know a little bit about party plan marketing. This woman was definitely like social media before we had the apps and the internet to back it up. She was a one woman social media machine. I picked the song Popular from the soundtrack of Wicked because I just imagine Brownie Wise telling Earl, like, you know, with these home parties, you're going to be popular. And it just kind of stuck in my head. So here we go. Be popular. I'll help you be popular. You'll hang with the right cohorts. You'll be good at sports. Know the slang you've got to know. So let's start. On to our next origin story. James Thomas Brudenell, the seventh Earl of Cardigan. He was the Major General of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War. Yes. Was he smart? Not really. Brave. Also, no. Competent. It's been debated a bit. A powerful and commanding leader of men. Of fashion, perhaps, uh, but of men, not so much. But he was rich. 
His competence may have been often questioned, but his checkbook never was. In 1839, the 11th Light Dragoons became Prince Albert's own hussars with redesigned and elaborate, expensive new uniforms. Oh yes, the Earl had his men decked out. It's estimated he spent about, in today's dollars, a million pounds a year towards remounts and distinctive uniforms for his troops, which caused great resentment among his professional officers because they had to match the men's attire with even more costly uniforms. An officer's jacket, for example, in today's money, would cost about 3,900 pounds, and the officers had to buy their own. His most notorious exploit took place during the Crimean War in 1854 when, as a major general, he was in command of the Light Cavalry Brigade at the Battle of Balaclava, and he led the charge of the Light Brigade. Yes, he thundered on his horse, leading his men towards the Russian guns, but then his conduct thereafter was a bit open to criticism. You see, the Earl considered his duty was then done, he had made an appearance, he had charged the enemy, and he disdained, as he later explained, to fight the enemy among private soldiers. Ugh. And so he turned about and made his way out of the battlefield, past his still advancing and bewildered men, who now no longer had a major general commanding the men. As he would tell it, he, he sauntered at a leisurely pace away from the battlefield. Um, as others would tell it, even the, the enemy lines, one of their officers was like, who is that man galloping away? And other people were like, no, he did not saunter. He was galloping hell for high water out of that battlefield. However, <laughs> the news of his glorious charge into enemy lines was what made the newspapers, not the, the second half, where he ran away <laughs> thereafter. And so everyone thought he was this hero. They welcomed him back as a hero. When his ship docked, he was practically mobbed by an enthusiastic crowd. Queen Victoria invited him to Windsor to regale them with stories of his his heroics. Victoria even noted how modestly he presented his story. Um, that modesty soon departed, and he began to give highly exaggerated accounts of his participation. There was banquets in his honor. He gave a long speech in his hometown. He started describing how he had even shared the privations of his men by living the whole time in a common tent with them when in reality he spent time in his luxury yacht that was uh, harbored slightly offshore so he didn't have to spend time with the men. As historians would later say, a more misleading account of his own exploits could hardly have been given. And he was able to enjoy this adulation for many months, uh, during which time Merchants were very eager to profit from his fame. They sold pictures of him depicting his role in, in the charge, uh, and written chronicles based on his own accounts were rushed into print. And the cardigan was a knitted waistcoat that was supposedly worn by the Earl on the campaign, and it became very fashionable. Supposedly, 
the the rumor was that he invented the cardigan after noticing that the tails of his coat had accidentally been burnt off in a fireplace. But everyone was wearing their, their cardigans, and apparently they still kept wearing them after they knew the truth of the matter, and his, his true antics on the battlefield were uh, exposed. And the term originally referred to sort of a knitted sleeveless vest, but then began to expand to other types of garments over time. It was originally really marketed towards men. It was a men's item of clothing. And then Coco Chanel is the one who began to popularize it for women later. I feel like now we we have fully overtaken the cardigan. I have a healthy collection. I know Emily does as well. Uh, Cardigans are the perfect way to layer an outfit. So even though the Earl's behavior and conduct might have been Uh, less than exemplary. Uh, We did get a really convenient, handy piece of clothing out of it, so I I guess there's that. So yes, the Earl of Cardigan. You know his backstory. And now I'm going to play a song by the band The Cardigans. This is my favorite game. So this thing is not named after, I would say, the original inventor. It was named after the reinventor of the original invention. So I'm going to talk about that person first. And his name was Charles Barbier de la Serre. He was born in France and he trained uh, to serve in the Besancon and was captain for a grand total of two days before resigning his commission and moving to the United States. At first, when he got there, he advertised French lessons, which didn't go as well, and then lessons on the mathematics of surveying, which was a lot more successful because America, as you know, has a lot of land and it needed to be surveyed, especially in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Inklings of what was to come, though, started in 1908 with his first publication. It was a single sheet outlining a form of shorthand. And people were like, "Um, this already exists. Thanks. No thanks. In 1815, he published, this time, an entire book about shorthand again. He explained that conventional writing is just a barrier to universal literacy. It takes too long to learn, and people who have to earn their living, like farmers and artisans, couldn't devote the necessary time for education to learn how to read and write. And he was also really concerned about the barriers to literacy faced by people with visual or hearing impairments. So he proposed a very simplified writing system that was based on a grid. It was kind of a five by five grid. And he took the alphabet, kicked out the letter W because that wasn't really a French thing. Um, And he also invented with this three tools to make it possible for somebody else to write using this way. A grooved board to receive the impressions, a punch, and then a guide to make sure that all of the dots lined up correctly. And he wrote in the text of his book, 
those who are blind from birth, deprived like other blind people of the means of reading books and writing, experience the greatest difficulties in correctly tracing conventional letters. Under these circumstances, the point writing executed without ink or pencil with a metal punch to impress regular points which can be felt with the hand which remains sensible to the touch seems to offer the greatest advantages but it is only in establishments consecrated to their instruction that one could properly determine the results so at this point he had come up with a theory of how a blind person could potentially read and write but could a blind person actually use it? Well, he needed someone to test it out. So he wrote to the Royal Institution for Blind Youth in Paris to tell them about his invention. And the first director rejected it absolutely. At that time, the students were learning to read using a raised type on a cursive form, a method that had been developed by the school's founder. It was difficult to read, students couldn't take notes, uh, but the method was so entrenched in the school and they had invested quite heavily in raised type books so they weren't interested in something that went in a different direction than their investment but that director eventually got fired and then he was replaced by a new one a doctor alexandre rene penier which they had a very weird rocky relationship anyway this was just the start of how weird and rocky it was Barbier wrote to the school and sent information about his method and Pinier he was polite but he was like very standoffish so he mislaid Barbier's initial letter made appointments then canceled them or just didn't show up he avoided meeting him for two months but then at the same time he sorry if you hear that bell those bells that is my cat he is the color of darkness and that's why he has such a loud collar so we don't step on him and he also has I think sighted another cat in the window so he's really excited he's running back and forth so when you hear the tinkling bells that's what's going on yeah uh, returning to the story so despite all of this hemming and hawing he assigned someone at the school to learn the method and demonstrate it the administration, they were impressed by how easy it was to learn. The students realized that they could now take notes, they could reread them, something they'd never been able to do. When Barbier and Pinier finally met in person, his method was already in use at the school. And from the student's perspective, being able to write using simple equipment was a huge advance in their education. Barbier's method had its drawbacks. It lacked symbols for punctuation or numbers. There was no distinction between capital letters and lowercase. It couldn't be used for musical notation, but at the same time, it was a proof of concept that blind people could raise raised dots that formed a code and that they could easily use the tools that went with them. One of the students at the Royal Institution for Blind Youth, though, happened to be Louis Braille. He had been rendered blind by a childhood accident, and he had started the school in 1819. Point writing was introduced in 1821. He had two years of experience trying to learn to read the raised cursive type, and then along with his fellow students, he learned 
the Barbier method, and he began to develop his own version of point writing. Because of Pinier, he wouldn't tell Barbier about what the student was doing for reasons nobody knows, but Barbier didn't learn about the Braille method until four years after Braille had published his first description of the six-point system, which represented a considerable advance on Barbier's system. It could be read much more quickly and adapted to uses such as mathematics and music. He wrote and asked for a copy of the book, and Pinier was like, I don't know who that is. I don't know who you're talking about. But finally, Barbier got the copy of the book, and then he wrote a congratulatory letter to its author, apologizing for not using Braille's own system to write his letter. The two exchanged friendly letters, and Braille visited Barbier at his lodgings. For some reason, Pinier would go on to write that when they met, it was very hostile, and Louis was correcting him, and <laughs> gave this really weird account. But once they found the letters, they were like, no, these two people were quite friendly with each other that didn't go down like that at all. Uh, what can I say? Pinier just had a lot of issues and it was in the past. No one could force him to go to therapy to deal with whatever was going on there. So should we have called it the Barbier method, the Barbier Braille method perhaps? I find it interesting that a very seemingly random Frenchman would be so frustrated with the alphabet and its limitations to literacy because it's hard to learn that he invented a whole new system of writing for blind people. And then by all accounts, Louis Braille was incredibly intelligent and smart and so he just took it to the next level. That is the story of Braille. I picked the song Learning to Fly by Tom Petty because I just imagine it being a really exciting time to finally be able to not only read something that was easier to read, but to be able to write and to communicate with others that way and how that was probably so freeing. So I felt like this song kind of went with it. I'm learning to fly And another account that's coming from France, Etienne de Silhouette. Absolutely not an artist, as I first thought when I heard his last name. He studied finance and economics. And with Madame Pompadour's support, I could not find any references on how he knew her. But anyway, with her support, he was awarded with the position of Controller General in 1759. His task... <laughs> too big a task for one for one man, I think, but it was to curb France's spiraling deficit and strengthen the finances for the Seven Years' War against Britain. The court at first accepted him blindly, like, oh, well, he has Madame Pompadour's support, you're welcome here, friend, and it quickly turned to, what have you done? Because he was bent on attacking privilege by levying a land tax on the estates of the nobles and by reducing the pensions in an attempt to restore the kingdom's finances. 
by the English method of taxing the rich and privileged. Nobility were exempt from taxes in the previous tax system. He devised a general subvention, which was taxes on external signs of wealth, like doors, windows, farms, luxury goods, servants, profits. It benefited you to look poor. If you wanted to look rich, it was going to cost you. And he did manage to curtail the royal household expenditure. Revised state pensions, he encouraged free trade, he reduced some of the ancient kind of out-of-date taxes, established new ones with the vision of a unified French market. He even took the war measure of ordering the nobility to melt down like their goldware and silverware. They did not like this. They did not. <laughs> well, do you want to be in debt? No. <laughs> then let's melt down the silverware. Also no. He was heavily criticized by the nobility, including Voltaire, who thought his measures, though theoretically beneficial, only in theory, not in application, were not suitable for wartime and the French political situation. So on November 20th in 1759, after eight months in the position, he left the court and retired, or perhaps was forced out, where he withdrew to Brie-sur-Marne, where he spent the remainder of his life dodging the scorn and sarcasm in religious devotion. So how did this man come to represent the tracing of someone's profile in black on a white backdrop? During this period, having a shadow profile cut from black paper was growing in popularity. It provided a simple and inexpensive alternative for those who couldn't afford more decorative and expensive forms of portraiture, like a painting or sculpture. Those who considered it cheap attached the word silhouette to it. So his penny-pinching manner led to the term a la silhouette to be applied to things perceived as cheap or austere. So perhaps the lesson we learn is don't force the French nobility to give up their luxury. Uh, otherwise, they will force you on an extended time out, out in the country, where you can consider what it is that you've done. The song I'm going to play is by the Postal Service, and it's called We Become Silhouettes. Plumier was a French priest and botanist and is considered one of the most important botanical explorers of his time. He made three expeditions to the West Indies and was appointed botanist to King Louis the, oh goodness, Roman numerals, uh, 14th of France. <laughs> Ooh, it's been a long time since I learned those in school. Um, he was born in Marseille, and at the age of 16, he entered the religious order of the Minims, and he devoted himself to the study of mathematics and physics, made physical instruments, and was an excellent draughtsman, painter, and turner. His work began in 1689 by order of the government, 
and he accompanied collector Joseph Donet Surian as illustrator and writer. They remained there for a year and a half, and this first journey proved very successful. He was able to publish their discoveries, and Plumier was appointed royal botanist after he was recommended by Charles Bigon. And so, of course, Plumier had to name a flower after him, and thus the begonia came to be. In 1693, by command of Louis, he made a second journey, and in 1695, his third journey, during which he discovered a new flower on the island of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and he named the plant after the revered 16th century German botanist Leinhard Fuchs. Yes, the fuchsia. And in 1703, he discovered another flower that he named after Pierre Magnol, the great botanist who introduced the concept of plant families, and so the magnolia came to be. He was about to start his fourth journey, but unfortunately passed away from pleurisy. After his death, they found he left 31 manuscript volumes containing notes and descriptions, about 6,000 drawings, 4,000 which were of plants, the remainder were of American animals of nearly all classes, and the natural scientists of the 18th century spoke to him with admiration. Turnifort and Linnaeus named in his honor the genus Plumeria, which is indigenous in about 40 species to Central America. What a time when you could just discover things by being the first person there to really document them. I mean, of course, the indigenous people had their input too, but other people were like, nope, it's the begonia. I feel like now if you want to discover something, your best bet is probably like deep in the rainforest, a cave yet untouched by man, the deepest depths of the ocean. I mean, you really have to outdo yourself for a good botanical discovery these days. So... Yeah, that's Charles Plumier. Too bad he didn't get to complete that fourth expedition. Like, who knows what interesting thing he might have named after another notable person in his life or or in history. This song is by the Talking Heads, and it is called Nothing But Flowers. I read that when the Talking Heads wrote this song, it was greatly influenced by a lot of uh, songwriters who were writing about how man was ruining the earth and so they decided to kind of go in the opposite direction and the lyrics describe a post-apocalyptic world in which modern technology has been largely eliminated and the singer is torn between his appreciation for nature's beauty and his dependency on such disappearing items like lawnmowers and fast food. I thought it was funny, so here we are with Talking Heads, Nothing But Flowers. I mentioned a Zamboni machine at the beginning of this show, didn't I? Well, yes, there was a Mr. Zamboni. In fact, even better, there were Zamboni brothers. 
in the 1920s, brothers Frank and Lorenzo Zamboni made a nice living producing block ice for the food industry. But as refrigeration began to improve, business started not doing so well. But they decided to stick with ice. It had done them well so far. So in 1940, they opened a skating rink but found maintaining a quality surface was almost impossible. Resurfacing was expensive and time-consuming, requiring several workers to shave the ice, haul the scrapings away, squeegee the surface, spray water, and wait for it to freeze. The process took about 90 minutes. Frank Zamboni never graduated from high school, but he was certified in tinkering, and he figured there had to be a better way. So beginning in 1942, he began to experiment with idea after idea, and it took him seven years, but in 1949, he cracked the code. This was the Model A. It was built on a Jeep platform. A wooden box held snow shavings. Water dropped from a tank to wash the ice, was pumped back into the bucket, and then another layer of water was laid down for a fresh, clean surface. The vehicle wasn't the most aesthetic or graceful looking things, but it worked and it resurfaced the rink with a clean sheet in 15 minutes. Growth for the Zamboni machine was slow at first. Only 32 machines were built in the next seven years, but as many places began to build more ice skating rinks, there began to be a much bigger demand for Zamboni machines. The late Charles Schultz was an avid hockey player, and he had two of them at his home rink, and the machines made several appearances in his Peanuts comic strip. Snoopy drove one, and Charlie Brown mused, there are three things in life that people like to stare at, a flowing stream, a crackling fire, and a Zamboni clearing the ice. The song I'm going to play along with this is... I want to drive the Zamboni by the Gear Daddies. Yeah, I want to drive the Zamboni. Yeah, I want to drive the Zamboni. Yes, I do. We look forward to broadcasting next week when it's all three of us again. If you want to hear more Dream Infringement, we are on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just type in Dream Infringement and you'll find us. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Have a great rest. Have a great rest. Have a great rest of the week. That's so hard to say. Have a great rest of the week. Oh my goodness. Anyway, bye.